What's in a Name, the Australia-Indonesia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. In this special series, ASPE's Dr David Engel and Dr Gartra Priyandita speak to special guests about the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership and the five pillars supporting it. In this episode, David and Gatra are joined by Dr. Efvan Laksmana and Bob Lowry for a discussion exploring the defence and security dimensions of the partnership. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode in our podcast series where we look at the comprehensive strategic partnership between Indonesia and Australia. In this episode, we're looking at the defence and security dimensions of the relationship, and few people are as qualified to talk about this topic as our two guests. First, we have Dr. Efan Laksmana, who is a leading expert on Indonesian foreign and defense policy. He is currently a research fellow at the Center on Asia and Globalization at the National University of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and a non-resident scholar with Carnegie China and the Lowe Institute. Evan is a prolific writer, having written many works, including about Indonesia's defense relations with Australia. We also have Bob Lowry, who is also another prolific writer on the Indonesian military and the Australia-Indonesia defense relationship, having produced many books and articles on the subjects. Bob has had many titles in the past, including as an advisor to the National Security Advisor of Timor-Leste, Associate Director of the Australian Defense Studies Center, and Acting National Director of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. So Evan and Bob, welcome to the podcast. Well, one interesting feature of the CSP is that despite being a strategic partnership, contains only a few references to the defence and security dimensions of the relationship. One line in Pillar 3, which has the most coverage on defence, reads, We resolve to face together the shared challenges of rivalry and competition, as well as the threats to terrorism, radicalism, extremism and transnational crime. The first half of this sentence begs many questions. What does it mean to say we resolve to face together the shared challenges of rivalry and competition? Do we even agree on the nature of the challenges? Evan, over to you. Uh, sure, thanks. Um, first, I think there's there's certainly a few uh, different layers to that, right? Uh, resolve to face. Face itself, I think, could could mean different things, right? Facing together bilaterally, facing together within the context of ASEAN, etc. I think that uh, brings out a whole different set of uh, platforms and options. Um, and this is actually where there are divergences in the tools available and tools that are embraced by Australia may not be the same tools embraced by Indonesia, Quad and AUKUS being uh, uh, some examples of that. But, you know, tool uh, diversity aside, I think the good point that you raise about the nature of the challenges I would argue certainly uh, we do not. We do not share all of the same set of strategic challenges. There are some in which we do, but not all of the uh, we agree on. Um, just for a, a simple starting point, and, and we can certainly discuss this further, a set of the daily operational challenges, for example, in the maritime domain is, is, is certainly something uh, that perhaps Indonesia and Australia um, can find areas to work with, whether it's in the Indian Ocean or the Pacific and others. But other broader long-term strategic challenges, primarily China, are simply areas that Australia and, and Indonesia will not necessarily have a consensus on how to respond, let alone understand the nature of the challenges. I think Australia views China in a very different lens in the way that Indonesian policymakers view the problem. And most importantly, I think for this particular question, Indonesia itself doesn't have a good consensus view on what those challenges are. If you ask 
foreign policymakers at the foreign ministry, if you ask defense policymakers, if you ask economic policymakers, they will all give different answers uh, as to what Indonesia's challenges are. Um, so part of the challenge, I think, uh, also comes from Indonesia, uh, which in which we don't have a good sense of the strategic challenges that we face. Yeah, I, I would agree with uh, with a lot of that. There's no doubt, though, that when you look at those, that basic outline there, the two words that stand out are rivalry and competition. And that obviously indicates the rivalry between the United States and China as being the key strategic dilemma that we all face. And of course... We do share a common interest in that we don't want this to break into uh, actual hostilities if we can avoid it. And as Evan said, we use different means to achieving this. On the Australian-US side, of course, it's more about creating a balance of power. It's quite clear and quite well understood, I think, as uh, SBY stated uh, while he was president, that the balance of power actually enabled Indonesia to take that more independent stance as a mediator and moderator between the two sides, even though it didn't want to get necessarily involved in uh, interfering with the relationship in terms of foreign naval operations against the uh, bases in the South China Sea, etc. Um, and all those other uh, areas, uh, you know, um, in terms of the cooperation, terrorism, uh, radicalization. Uh, extremism, etc. That's that's a common interest that we've been sharing now for at least 20 years, and there's a lot of co- cooperation on, that goes on, and operational cooperation that goes on there behind the scene, whereas it's not the same when it gets to the, the point of, uh, uh, of of rivalry and competition. Is one of the the main problems here fundamentally the fact that one of us is a, a U.S. treaty ally and the other is doctrinally non-aligned, and how then can we see eye to eye? Well, I think. There's also a huge misconception, um, even within Indonesia itself, of what it means to be non-aligned. Uh, it is unfortunate that in English, non-aligned is, is very much a product of the Cold War in terms of the non-aligned movement, etc. But uh, the problem with Indonesia is that non-aligned uh, in terms of independent and active is then interpreted as neutrality. Uh, I think that's a false interpretation of what Hatta and, and, and some of Indonesia's early founders uh, wanted to talk about when we wanted to be non-aligned. It's not that we want to be neutral, but it's that we have to pick a side in terms of our own interests and that we are actively seeking to pursue to defend that interest. Um, so in my view, the one red line in this debate is certainly a formal alliance treaty relationship. That's the one part that Indonesia will never go forward. But in terms of alignment, in terms of policy coordination and mutual expectation, we have been aligned with everyone. Uh, We have been aligned with the U.S. in the past. We have been aligned with Australia on some issues. And we have been aligned with China on some issues. So we shouldn't define alignment as strictly through the context of formal treaty alliances. If we define alignment in the context of policy coordination, that has happened a lot. And so Indonesia's challenge now is sort of moving from what is sort of acceptable uh, in terms of sectoral alignment. We do economic relationship more deeply with China. We do security partnership with Australia and the U.S. But the the challenge now is that the polarizing effect of U.S.-China competition is the blurring of those different sectors between economics, between security, between social, uh, between people-to-people, technology. So this blurring uh, of different sectoral alignments is why it's uncomfortable for Indonesia, because we've been accustomed to building relationships with everyone on different sectors. What happens if we cannot do economic cooperation with China because the U.S. doesn't want us to do it? Or vice versa, we cannot do security partnership with the U.S. because China doesn't want us, which is 
uh, what we've seen, for example, when China protested Indonesia's military exercises with the U.S. in the Natunas, right? So this is where I think uh, the challenge lies: is the spillover uh, to the broader set of uh, of different policy domains, and this is something that we haven't really quite figured out. And I don't think the answer would be let's put all of our different sectoral alignment baskets into one. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen either. But I think at the heart of it, Indonesia and dare I say many in Southeast Asia still cling on to the dream that we've had 20 years ago, I guess, that U.S. and China will work together, not against one another uh, in Southeast Asia. And we haven't really uh, figured out how to do that yet. Yeah, and I think another way of looking at this is to say, what would happen if the the U.S. actually decided to withdraw back to Guam uh, and maybe obviously keep bases in Japan and South Korea? What would be the bargaining power that would be retained by ASEAN at that point uh, and in Indonesia in particular, and w- what a change would this bring in terms of foreign policy and the approach to defence? And I think this is the thing that we've all got to come to to grips with. With we've got to do a, a few what ifs to try, try and tease out actually the key strands of this relationship. And as you mentioned before, uh, Evan, there's a difference of uh, opinion and attitude between DEPLU, for example, the Department of Foreign Affairs in Indonesia and Defence. Defence is obviously more aware of the military threat that China poses, but also aware of the foreign policy angle that you can't afford to be too close to uh, the Americans or the Australians in terms of defence because of the impact it'll have on the foreign policy and your your scope for being independent and marshalling the the support of the other uh, members of Southeast Asia. That's something that we need to reconcile more sharply because, as you mentioned, the relationship with China is not just black and white in terms of military, foreign policy. It covers everything now. And we know that China, over the last 10, 15 years, has been infiltrating most societies in economic terms, in terms of the media, in terms of the Chinese populations within these countries. So it's not just a simple matter of, of looking at uh, in particular sectors and deciding what we, we're going to do. It's a much broader approach that we have to take and we have to look at a lot more of the what-ifs to figure out how we're actually going to cooperate more closely together, I think. I absolutely agree about uh, the notion for a broader approach and, and to step away from a very bureaucratic, stovepiping, uh, sectoral focus type of thing. I absolutely agree with that. The problem is it doesn't happen yet for Indonesia. It hasn't happened yet and it probably won't until we have a new administration uh, that might may that, that may or may not focus on developing that wider approach. Uh, secondly, uh, the what ifs are also for the time being, because of the absence of that, you know, sort of central strategic hub that can integrate uh, different domains, precisely uh, because we don't have that, uh, the answer to the what ifs will always be sectoral as well. If you ask the question, what happens if U.S. withdraw, let's say, just to Guam? Well, we've had that debate since the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. We already knew that the U.S.'s staying power will always be limited and it will come and go. We knew what happens when the U.S. is is distracted by other uh, theaters, uh, shall we say, like the Middle East. And some of us have been uh, thinking about uh, improving our own capabilities. But of course, none of us have ever reached the point where we can actually do that on our own. And certainly... The doubling down on um, on exercises, on relationships, on military, uh, different technological uh, uh, cooperation, etc., is, is certainly proof 
of the fact that we are far, far, far from being able to defend ourselves uh, without some form of um, security partnership with regional powers. Now, the issue is that I think the answer to the what ifs, uh, I think it will be very limited as well. If you ask what happens if the U.S. decides one day to, you know what, I don't really care about the rest. I'm just going to uh, resort back to Japan and, and Guam and everything else is off the table. Then some of the defense establishment would say, well, this is why we need to increase our uh, defense budget to 5% GDP instead of less than 1%, right? This is why we need to buy more F-15s and more Rafales. So there will always be an answer that favors uh, short-term solutions. But I haven't seen in any of the discussions I've heard uh, an actual genuine strategic plan uh, for some sort of ability to fill the vacuum if and when that occurs, whether it's from a genuine capability development or from a wider uh, strategic lens of also dealing with China at the same time. And and we certainly haven't reached that maturity in the uh, level of, uh, of strategic debates in Indonesia. Yeah, I think that's pretty. That's right. Uh, we can see those debates in Australia too, from uh, the approach taken by Hugh White on one side and the, the current uh, policy being followed at the moment. And it depends, of course, on how you assess the United States and its its future, both in terms of politics and its capability to actually sustain the global role that it's got at the moment. Um, and what we're all hoping, of course, is that uh, it it's a question of time that the United States will remain retain its relative power in comparison to China for some time yet, um, and that China won't necessarily become the behemoth that everybody or many people, especially the economists, believe that it will. There are indications to support the fact that, or the, uh, the approach that some take in this regard, that China may be actually plateauing now, uh, and that the relative strength between the two superpowers will remain basically stable for at least the next 10 or 15 years, and beyond that nobody can really plan at this stage. Right. Well, just going back to the bilateral defense relationship between Australia and Indonesia, um, there's a strong narrative, I think, within uh, Australian foreign policy discourse that you know, Indonesia is a very important country to Australia. And this discourse also exists um, within the Australian defense community. And the 2009 Defense White Paper noted that Australia's relationship with Indonesia remains our most important defense relationship in the immediate region. And while subsequent doc defense documents haven't been so definitive, they have noted that a strong and productive relationship is sort of critical to Australia's national security and that the defense relationship serves to counter mutual security threats. Uh, how important is each country to the other as a defense partner? Um, that's difficult because I think uh, at least my impression so far is that it's not equal. Um, I think Australia sees the relationship with Indonesia more important than the other way around. I think the, you know, the old joke that is, in my view, somewhat offensive, uh, but it's still being talked about, that Australia, in the minds of some in Jakarta, especially the older generation, um, as, as an appendix, it's there, we don't really need it, but it flares up, it can kill you. I think it's still there. Of course, whether or not we like it, uh, the East Timor operation will always be uh, talked about, right? It won't go away. It's been sort of downplayed in, in formal engagements, certainly. Uh, but in private conversations, they still make a comeback. So for my end, I think right now, uh, unless Indonesia suddenly decides that Australia itself is a source of threat or that there's a new threat coming from the South, 
Indonesia's priority will still be uh, northwards, um, above us rather than from downwards. So in that sense, I think uh, hopefully things will change uh, with the new um, SIPA agreements, with the new engagement plans, etc. I think slowly things hopefully will change uh, in the future. But my impression is that I think it's moving in the trajectory uh, that some will see Australia as important for Indonesia, but I don't think it's in the same boat yet in terms of the other way around. I think Australia sees Indonesia more important uh, um, for many different reasons. Um, and, and I don't know whether this is something that will change uh, fundamentally, that we'll both equally see each other as equally important uh, for our different strategic interests. Um, my sense is it won't anytime soon. It might, but it won't right now. And from a defense standpoint, if we look at the reality, um, actually Australia is a pretty significant partner when it comes to education, training, exercises, engagement. I think the only country we do more stuff with is, is the United States. Australia would certainly be number two or three in terms of engagement and daily interactions with. But when it comes to actual strategic and operational issues of concern for Indonesia outside of these good bilateral relationships, do Indonesian defense policymakers automatically think of Australia when we have a problem with uh, with China in Atuna? I don't see that, right? Um, do Indone- does Indonesia uh, think about uh, Australia as a source of high-end weaponry? Not really. So I think Australia's relationship is itself the capital, right, that we built on, that we worked on. But is that capital going to be used uh, for Indonesia to address its security challenges? That's the part that I don't know yet. The question of perspective is key here, because if you look at it from an Indonesian perspective, any threat to Indonesia can only come from the south. I mean, it's it, it never going to come from Australia just because of the limitations of our resources, amongst other things, other than uh, you know the fact that it's a democratic country. Hopefully, it doesn't take a look at um, a, a threat coming from Indonesia or try to prevent um, a threat coming from Indonesia. The other aspect of this, of course, is that our strategic heartlands are so far apart. Indonesia's got 80% of the population in Java and Sumatra. And almost by definition, that means 80% of the GDP is, is found in those regions. And so that is the primary area that they look to for defence and security. And that means the South China Sea and the, and the various states that guard it. So any pressure coming coming against Indonesia, by definition, it will draw back to that strategic heartland if it's really pressed. For Australia, of course, our strategic heartland is in the southeast of the country. So we're at opposite ends of our respective uh, national uh, territory. Uh, and you can see the, the impact of that in the sense that although the main threat can only come from or through Indonesia, as the historical documents said, only about, uh, you know, 10, 12,000 of our troops are actually deployed in the north across from Townsville to Darwin. Um, and so you've got basically in each country, you've got the poor relations butting up against each other with their, and, and that separates their strategic heartlands. And uh, of course, if you look at it from a, uh, the, the aspect of geometry, you would say, well, an Australia is a natural partner of Indonesia in that it covers that eastern end of the archipelago in terms of uh, any military threat. And that's where uh, Indonesia, if it was under a, a, a threat that uh, that was serious and uh, looked like it might be a threat to the whole archipelago, would, would be looking to Australia to assist in, on those approaches. 
at the same time, of course, that poses some sorts of um, dilemmas because Australia obviously views the threat coming from the north as well. And Indonesia obviously looks at that at some stage and say, well, you know, who are they looking at as being the threat? And from an Australian perspective, of course, it's not obviously Indonesia. It never really has been, if you look back through the strategic basis papers, apart from maybe a short period uh, in the latter Sukarno uh, period. But since then, it's not been uh, the key feature of Australian defence policy. But it's, it's only in recent years, of course, that China's had the capacity to actually pose a military threat to, to either of us. So this whole question has become more serious now and we've got to look at, at this more broadly and trying to figure out what sort of military threat would, it, would China pose to us. Is it just a question of securing the South China Sea and maybe if uh, there was a, you know, a war over Taiwan, maybe trying to secure one of the, or two of the straits to ensure the continued supply of oil during the conflict? Or is it a, a military threat in a, in a much broader sense? And what would Indonesia do, for example, if there was a conflict over Taiwan in which Australia would inevitably be involved because of the presence of American forces on Australian soil and the bases that are run by, uh, jointly by Australia and America? So I think uh, the friction will be there because of our different perspectives and different capacities to help. And as Evan said, I think as time goes on, and if, if this is a big if, if the th threat becomes more apparent from China, then we've got to think about this more seriously. No, I think that's a, a great point. Uh, I think certainly nobody is envisioning a serious, uh, you know, head-on bilateral conflict between Australia and Indonesia to the point uh, that Australia launches an invasion of Java. Uh, I don't think that's a serious conversation, right? But uh there are conversations about encirclement within the context not of australia but of australia's relationship with the united states and its allies as well as through some venues like fpda so that sort of sees or, or rather places australia within a wider package deal with other countries rather than just australia um uh, by itself and this is uh the the debate about whether or not AUKUS and other um uh, platforms are leading to strategic overcrowding. We saw yesterday from the Osman uh, statements about Japan increasingly being part of the force posture development and, and, and discussion in Australia. And this also uh, relates to you know what Indonesia once saw as, as the US being much more uh, rotated via Darwin, etc. So if you look at the overall sense of the discourse, it's always about the extent to which Australia will be part of a wider set of, of strategic changes that might affect Indonesia's uh, strategic interests, including in your example, Bob, in terms of Taiwan, right? Uh, what happens if in a Taiwan scenario, Australia is seen as, let's say hypothetically, a new logistic hub for US military operations. And the quickest way would be through Indonesia's archipelagic sea lanes. And China, knowing that Australia will be part of it, China finds a way to block um, Australia from entering the first island chain through Indonesia's sea lanes. Now, surely one uh, cannot discount the possibility that Indonesia's strategic sea lanes will be something to fight over, whether access within or, uh, or coming in and out of it. Now, if Indonesia were to develop its own anti-access capabilities and prevent uh, the sea lanes from being used by anyone, not just one party, because once you close the door, it's a two-way street, right? It shouldn't be just opening up for one and, and, and closing another, then that would make us actual belligerents. 
Um, these are, I think, uh, the kinds of conversation in which concerns about Australia isn't uh, just about Australia itself, but it's the wider part of the network. And, you know, we understand, of course, that looking at from Australia's standpoint, what is Australia supposed to do? Uh, this is Australia's options. These are Australia's uh, geostrategic nature, and this is uh, the kind of choices that Australia is making. But it's also hard to see uh, the shift that, oh, because we both see China as a challenge, we should all be in agreement about these things. Uh, we won't. And the sooner we accept that Australia's relationship with, with the U.S. as well as other partners will always be a point of concern, uh, the sooner we can move on to find ways around it rather than hoping um, that China will somehow make Indonesia a lot more closer to Australia's standpoint. And that's okay. I think it's okay that we disagree about the nature of the U.S. alliance. It's okay that we disagree about the nature of the China challenge. What can we do in the meantime uh, uh, in terms of our own uh, bilateral engagement um, and accepting that, you know, we all have our own strategic choices and we have to... Yeah, I think the key word here is complementary. Uh, I don't see Indonesia, uh, it, 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 certainly under current circumstances, wanting to join the US alliance. But I think it's a complementary relationship in the sense that without a balance of power in the region, then ASEAN's leverage is much reduced and will be price takers from the China relationship rather than being able to, uh, to uh, mediate and moderate the, the relationship. This this relationship will be obviously be a very dynamic one and changes the power relationships between those two uh, two superpowers changes over time. That won't change the relationship with Australia so much. And I've always been fascinated by the sense that Indonesia feels surrounded by uh, these other alliances and particularly in terms of wanting to build a force structure relative to the neighbours, when the neighbours are of obviously no threat whatsoever in terms of Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines. Uh, Australia, and I just wonder in the in the strategic assessments that are made by the Department of Defence in Indonesia, where China actually fits. Is it a serious threat, or is it a, is it just taken as one of those things that might develop over time? But in the meantime, the neighbours are more uh, more important to us. And is that only because of minor uh, issues like uh, disagreements over uh, the maritime boundary arrangements, or is it is there something more fundamental here? Uh, those are, are two different questions, Bob. <laughs> uh, but first, on, on ASEAN, it's already happening, Bob. We are price takers. There is no ASEAN in this sense. There is individual Southeast Asian states who are reassessing whether or not ASEAN brings the same set of strategic benefits and values as it has been before. And you see some countries making moves in that direction. Um, so ASEAN is already a price taker in the U.S.-China competition, uh, so much as we claim we're not, but we are. Um, and so the balance of power is only relevant within the context of the individual Southeast Asian states' calculation of, of their own strategic interests. How, um, for example, uh, in some places, the discussions over, let's say, Cambodia's uh, positioning is also filtered through by its own neighbors, right, between Vietnam and Thailand. In Singapore, it's between uh, how U.S. and China affects its relationship with Malaysia and Indonesia and vice versa. So there is an extra layer, I think, of, of consideration um, on the U.S.-China competition that's more closer to the regional context, but also within the context of domestic polarization. The growth in, in the contestation between pro-U.S. or pro-West and versus pro-China camp in each of these domestic uh, states uh, in Southeast Asia, I think, is another 
a source of concern. So the balance of power, I think, is not relevant within the context of ASEAN as a regional grouping. I think it's relevant within the context of the considerations of the different individual uh, Southeast Asian states. On the strategic assessment, we have to dispense with the notion that there is such a thing as a rational strategic assessment. Certainly uh, right now in Indonesia, what we have is a particular set of interests that uh, let's say one agency wants to pursue, let's say procurement, and then everything else is, is sort of shaped around that key interest. It's not about, hey, here's the environment, here's the key issues, here's the scenarios, and here's our response. That's ideal. That's, that's the typical goal that we should have for a good strategic assessment. That hasn't happened. It certainly hasn't happened in the last five, five or six, seven years. So that's the first assumption. Second, even if there were such an ideal set of assessments, when you look at the operational daily challenges of Indonesia's defense establishment and security establishment beyond the military, of course, China is a challenge. It's not the only challenge. There's a multitude of other challenges. And you may say that neighboring issues is not a problem, but I'm sure you remember what happened in Ambalad, right? Uh, it was only because of, of SBY and Malaysia working things out that the issue had died down over the last decade. But before, um, it's still a perennial challenge. Uh, Philippines and Malaysia still uh, cling on uh, the issue of Sabah. So bilateral, uh, acrimonious historical legacies, I think, I think are still there. And certainly, I think for Indonesia, when it comes to strategic assessment, China is as much as a problem as the U.S. When Indonesia talks about anti-access capabilities, let's say, over airspace, guess who the example is when uh, it's being discussed? The U.S. So to say that China... Uh, should ideally or should strategically be the number one challenge for across uh, different uh, um, defense establishment in Indonesia. That that certainly uh, has not been the case. Um, and so for me, yes, there is an uptick in the frequency in which China is discussed, particularly through uh, the Natuna uh, side of things. Although some of these conversations get into the realm of conspiracy theories over China's influence and, and economic footprint in Indonesia, which I don't think should be part uh, of a good defense strategic assessment, but it's still there. Um, and I think this is why, given the diversity of daily challenges and long-term strategic challenges, I think it's, it'll be hard to see a solid sound strategic assessment that only places China at the heart of it, uh, for Indonesia, I mean. But even there, I mean, there is a fundamental difference between uh, the U.S. and China in the sense that, sure, um, uh, the United States might uh, have different perceptions of the rules governing uh, overflight and, and passage, etc. But it doesn't mean to say that it's going to pose uh, any serious threat to Indonesian sovereignty. The only country that could possibly do that would be China. But if I can just go back to a matter of uh, detail, just uh, for a minute, you raised the question of Umblat, for example, and the fate of Umblat Islands was decided by the International Court of Justice uh, uh, Sahara era, I think, wasn't it, at the end of it. But the, the question of the maritime boundaries yet is still haven't been decided. And obviously the reason for that is that Indonesia doesn't want at this stage anyway, to spend the political capital that would be necessary to make the, the compromises necessary to come up with a new agreement on the maritime boundary. How do you see that particular issue working out? Well, I think that's not entirely accurate because I think uh, over the last six, seven years, 
there is data to show the frequency of Indonesia's negotiations on maritime boundaries across the board, not just with Malaysia, right? Uh, we have a lot of, of stuff remaining. But, you know, the proof is we finalized our agreement with, with the Philippines and, um, and Singapore and others. Yeah, Malaysia, I think, is, is taking a bit of time. Vietnam, we're making progress as well. So from a frequency of activity, certainly, I think in the last six, seven years, Indonesia has put resources to maritime boundary negotiations. Now, whether or not they're successful, whether or not this is something that will happen within 20 years or 10 years or, or one year, is certainly something to be worked out because I'm not myself trained as, as a lawyer, but as I understand it, the complexities of negotiations over maritime boundaries is, is extremely difficult. And it's not something like, whoops, we made a mistake, let's do over, right? Everything has to be done slowly and, and in the right way. But certainly, uh, uh, the finalization of our agreements with the Philippines, with Singapore, with Vietnam, I think is, is certainly a good trend in that direction. Ambalat is, of course, still a tricky, but we actually, uh, I think we still have, I don't know if it's still there, but last I checked a couple of years ago, we still have a special envoy for uh, uh, just for Malaysia in terms of negotiations both at the land side of things as well as the maritime side of things. So I think in that sense, the will and the, at least the preliminary resources are there to address it. Um, but as you know, that process of, of boundary negotiations may take place in a whole different set of, of setting compared to the threat perception or strategic assessment side of things. And this is why I think it's good that Indonesia is investing in these um, uh, maritime uh, diplomacy and, and and negotiations, but the management of the wider strategic setting is something that we have to figure out beyond ASEAN. And this is something that we don't have a good answer on. Is ASEAN really the only thing we have to manage tension in the meantime, as we go through the painstaking process of negotiations, let's say with Vietnam and Malaysia over the North Natsuna Sea area? Uh, this is something that I'm not, I'm not fully convinced uh, 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 that's our best bet right now. Well, it's great that we're talking about the maritime domain because I, I think uh, the next question that we have really focuses on the state of maritime cooperation between Australia and Indonesia. And you know, the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership talks about achieving mutual economic and security benefits in, in the maritime domain. And, and you know, there's been a lot of talk in the relationship over shared maritime interests from maintaining order at sea and to addressing non-traditional security challenges like piracy and people smuggling. How would you both rate the state of maritime security cooperation between Australia and Indonesia today? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think, to be honest, it's been pretty steady. Uh, it's not sort of groundbreaking, I guess, if groundbreaking was a thing in, in the waters. Um, but my sense is it's certainly perhaps the more institutionalized uh, uh, in terms of Indonesia's maritime security cooperation uh, with its neighbor. Um, it's it's pretty wide ranging, certainly. The framework is certainly there, the big strategic framework. Now it's about filling in the gaps in the framework within the context of that broader framework. The issue is, of course, mostly, I think, at least from my end, is Indonesia's uh, uh, own, own set of constraints, particularly uh, when it comes to maritime law enforcement and management of, of the maritime economy, institutional fracturing uh, of, of our own maritime security governance, I think is, is still a key problem. So the less Indonesia is able to provide coherence and strategic direction and purpose on its maritime security, I think the harder uh, it will be for Indonesia and Australia to sort of work together, not just on the operational day-to-day uh, -day stuff, but also 
much more wider than that. Um, so I think the, the, the challenge uh, and perhaps maybe the frustration for some is actually on these things. I think there are progress on, on, on these issues. For example, Indonesia just helped launch the ASEAN Coast Guard Forum in Bali a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think maritime law enforcement drive is, is certainly there in Indonesia. I think there's more realization of, of the things that we need to fix. But right now, uh, as long as Indonesia's maritime governance remains fractured and incoherent, uh, I think Australia uh, might need to have a little bit of patience and, um, and calibrate expectations of what we can achieve together in the maritime domain. Yeah, I think of uh, maritime, in, in, in the field of maritime law enforcement, uh, there are limits because of the, uh, the, the rules governing uh, sovereignty in, in each uh, case. Um, but there are areas where we overlap, and one of, the, one of them, of course, is in uh, controlling uh, fishing. Both countries suffer inadequate resources in this regard in terms of monitoring the, the seas. And the other one, of course, is the issue of pollution, which became uh, evident some time ago when there was a, an oil leak in the Timor Sea. And so in, t in terms of maritime law enforcement, uh, there are limits there. And, and the big, big one for Indonesia, of course, is actually knowing what's going on in the maritime environment. And that's where we can assist because of our, the coverage of our surveillance systems overlapping. And we have had an exchange of information in that field going back in, in the, into the, the 1980s. And we did provide, as you know, the um, aircraft uh, in the 1970s that were primarily devoted to uh, surveillance across the, the maritime domain in Indonesia. But the other aspect of this, of course, is that Indonesia is uh, talking about developing the blue economy and has been in a serious sense since um, SBY uh, was the president. But again, that takes a lot of resources and re requires a lot of uh, understanding of the maritime seabed and what resources might be there and how they can be exploited without uh, damaging the environment. And th that's an area where we, we can still uh, uh, cooperate. Um, um, in, a in the military sense, of course, that gets back to what do we do through the Defence Cooperation Program, and that's an area that is developing quite rapidly uh, at the moment. Can I just add a little bit of what, what Bob was saying uh, at the last part there on the DCP side of things and, and the military side of the maritime security cooperation? Uh, putting aside the, the reality that you know maritime law enforcement uh, may or may not be part of the Navy's job, which I think is, is a separate debate that uh, is worth having down the line. But putting aside that for, for a second, the historical trend of Indonesia and Australia's defense engagement has always been army-centric, whether it's about training, education, and exercises. The uptake uh, has been a little bit on the Air Force side, but the Navy has never been the primary historical trend for uh, defense engagement uh, between Indonesia and Australia. Now, the data, uh, I, I think, uh, will show that's the case. Uh, but I wrote that paper maybe about four or five years ago, and I don't know whether that has changed. But my sense is that the Navy to Navy side of things, the scenarios of, of the exercises, the engagement uh, at the education and training level, etc. For me, it hasn't really overturned the pre-existing army to army trend. And whether or not this might change or whether or not it should change in that direction, I do think we need to be cautious about saying that because we have so much to do in the maritime space, uh, the defense side of things will follow that and then sort of 
give the implicit assumption that Navy to Navy uh, will be much more uh, central uh, to the broader defense engagement. Um, and I'm not sure whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing that Army-Army ties remain sort of the core of the defense relationship. Uh, but it's certainly something that creates a different benchmark if we say that the maritime space is the, the central feature of, of the defense engagement. It's just, you know, a way of, of thinking about what to expect and what not to expect. Yeah, there has been developments in the last year or so, which, especially under the current and outgoing Pang Lima TNI, in which the intensity, not so much the number of exercises, but certainly the intensity of the exercises and the scope of the exercises has increased. And for the first time, they've increased to the point where the Australian side can actually count their engagement in these exercises as part of uh, developing their operational proficiency. They're no longer just simply operating alongside, but they're operating with through joint command arrangements, etc., that are far more intense. And uh, the Pangalima TNI is very keen to make sure that the mutual lessons are actually learned and that people are prepared to be challenged as a result of the, the findings of the assessments of how these exercises progress so that, that there can be real improvements in operational capability between the both sides. And, and they'll require extra resources, of course. And the other issue that he wanted to, to stress was that it should be conducted in different domains, or not so much different domains, but different areas of the country, uh, both countries, in fact, so that there was a greater variety in terms of the, the challenges posed to the forces operating together. But the reality is that the Army, of course, remains Indonesia's main force. It's, it's the senior service. It's the senior service in terms of its political influence. And despite the fact that Indonesia's gone to democracy, that remains the case. And the Army, uh, Army officers dominate the senior leadership uh, levels of the, of the armed forces simply because of the sheer numbers. So I think that relationship will remain pretty stable and constant, but that doesn't mean to say that the quality of the exercises being undertaken and the exchanges uh, implemented between both the Navy and the Air Force, remembering that both Navy and Air Force are maritime forces, uh, won't be increased in scope as time goes on. I want to return to something that Evan touched upon a little while ago, which was the question of defence industry collaboration. Given that this is becoming increasingly, I think, important in an Australian defence and security context, what scope is there for greater collaboration and engagement between our countries on that aspect of defence cooperation? Well, I mean, we'll see how the whole uh, Bush master thing progresses. Uh, we might see some lessons learned there or not. We'll see. But my sense is that the constraints are quite many, especially from Indonesia side of things. First of all, between SOEs and, and private defense companies will be a challenge, right? Australians um, are not organizing 15 SOEs on defense. Well, Indonesia uh, is pretty much an SOE-dominated field uh, when it comes to uh, um, a defense industry. Secondly, we should not discount the changes that the current defense minister, Prabowo, has had over the last few years in this side of things. He certainly has put down a very long shopping list all the way down to for the next 20, 30 years. Uh, but the majority of that shopping list remains uh, foreign technology. Despite the mandate of the 2012 Defense Industrial Law, 
saying that we should actually do more for domestic defense industry. So this is a bit of a, a huge contradiction that we, we haven't quite really figured out yet. Because without the support for the domestic industry in Indonesia, how is that domestic defense industry going to be able to partner with Australia and, and, and others to do more, right? So this is where I think some of the current agreements that we've seen, for example, with South Korea uh, and, and others, has some offset components to it. And it does involve some of the local defense companies. But now with the injection of private defense companies um, as a consequence of Indonesia's omnibus labor law a couple of years ago, that actually makes things a lot more complicated now. That there's new players. So at a time when the SOEs are supposed to be part of the offset, we have a new set of players who have come to the scene that may make things more complicated, as we've seen uh, with the uh, latest Indo Defense Expo a couple of months ago in Jakarta, or uh, maybe last month, actually. So I think in that sense, uh, Indonesia's operational needs are also, whether we like it or not, low-tech, right? If your daily concerns are insurgency and illegal fishing, you probably don't need F-35s, right? So the trajectory of, of technological needs are also very constrained in that sense. But most importantly for, uh, for Indonesia's long-term defense industrial partnership and, and collaboration is simply the fiscal space, right? As long as Indonesia's defense budget, uh, 60 to 70% in some years, uh, goes to personnel, which means you only have about 30, 40% left for capital spending like defense procurement, we can only proceed in very you know piecemeal fashion. What I like to say uh, for Indonesians is that we buy defense uh, technology like we buy cigarette. In Indonesia, we, we, you can buy cigarette by the piece, right? Not by the box. Uh, this is how we buy uh, defense hardware, by the piece. You know, 10 squadrons. No, we want five, maybe six. And you can expect to buy piecemeal fashion and then expect foreign defense companies to invest in a factory line and transfer of technology and all of that. And this, of course, doesn't even discuss the more fundamental problem, which is diversity. Indonesia has the highest number of foreign supplier in the region, 33 countries. How are we going to integrate all of that? How are we going to figure out interoperability, training, maintenance, repair? So if there were some room for some sort of joint venture or joint defense industrial collaboration with Australia, it has to be super limited. It cannot be broad-based. It cannot be major, complex, expensive systems. And both sides have to be very cognizant that, yeah, maybe we can work together on jointly producing a small, medium tech platform at best, assuming that we know where to sell it. Our own experience with Turkey on producing the medium tank um, hasn't been particularly successful. So the lesson from that is simply that it's nice to think about, it's nice to debate, but it's really unrealistic to have a huge expectation on that front for the time being. Yeah, I'd agree, I would agree with most of that. The, the reality is that we don't produce the end product in terms of aircraft or ships uh, on, on a, on a cost-effective basis. So uh, being a high-cost economy, uh, it's hardly likely that Indonesia will buy uh, something that uh, is produced in Australia, putting aside the limited capabilities we have. And more realistically, all we can expect to cooperate in is the uh, provision of uh, components 
and even that to some degree will be limited because of the fact that the main items come from other countries like South Korea or the Dutch or uh, the United States. So the, even the components of those particular products where there are uh, offset agreements etc will come from those source countries rather than from a third party unless there are already linkages established between them and we can provide them at a cheaper rate for some particular reason or because we've got expertise in a particular field. But it will always be limited. And econ economic nationalism, of course, is the driver in both countries in, in this area. I don't think that that's going to change in the long term. We did historically have grand ambitions with the, when the Nomad aircraft was produced in Australia. Um, but those, those dreams faded very quickly and as we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, there have been enormous problems in terms of defence industry in Australia. The fact that Evan mentioned before, the, the small scale of it, producing a few ships here and there, just doesn't make it economical. Thanks so much for that, Evan and uh, Bob. Uh, that has been an extremely interesting discussion. We've managed to cover everything from diverging threat perceptions to the operational details. Uh, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll return with a fifth and final episode of the series featuring Assistant Minister Tim Watts, MP, and Dr Dino Jalal.